Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 14, Theology is a Riot. Changing Faces and Changing Alliances, 337 to 341. We pick off where we left off in the historical narrative, roughly in the year 337. As we have noted, the ecclesiastical situation under Constantine was not entirely stable, since he really couldn't make up his mind about what to do with the dissenters of Nicaea. One minute he was banishing them and burning their books, the next he was welcoming them back with open arms into his empire. But in terms of political stability, Constantine's reign was long, prosperous, and relatively stable. 337 was a very important year for the Roman Empire, for it was a year in which the glorious, invincible Emperor Constantine made two very big mistakes that would forever alter the course of history. The first of these mistakes is a really tragic one that stopped all of Constantine's plans in their tracks. Constantine made the terrible, unforgivable mistake of dying. Perhaps his war-weary populace had wanted him to live forever so that they could keep on having some peace and quiet. Not much to ask for, but in the end, Constantine, like every ruler before and since, simply could not deliver. Once he knew he was dying, he finally asked for baptism, as so many of the early believers did, delaying it until their deathbed. Eusebius of Nicomedia, that old ally of Arius, rushed to the emperor's bedside and inducted him into the saving mysteries. The man credited with stamping out the Arian heresy was ushered into the church by one of that heretic's staunchest allies. Interestingly, Constantine would be quickly joined in death by his old ally and one-sided BFF, Eusebius of Caesarea. Loyal to Constantine to the end, the emperor's old speech rival shuffled off his mortal coil just one year after. And just like that, the Eusebii and their friends had become Eusebius and his friends. The faces of the empire are changing rapidly, and some of those first members of the Arian controversy are no more. Alexander is gone, Constantine is gone, now Eusebius of Caesarea is gone. And as this new cast of old-timers and newcomers takes the stage, they have to reckon with the second mistake Constantine made that was really more consequential. You may recall that Constantine had been raised up in the imperial tetrarchy system. He had been one of four emperors jointly managing the affairs of state. Now this arrangement quickly became a dumpster fire of warmongering and backstabbing as soon as Diocletian retired. And so Constantine was eventually forced to conquer all of the other co-emperors to get some stability. Only his sole rule as the only Augustus, could keep the Roman Empire together. Now, a man as clever as Constantine was should have been able to see this. He should have been able to see that the Tetrarchic system was just no good. Ultimately, the Empire was too tempting a prize for anyone 
to willingly share with others. But he didn't see that, because on his deathbed, Constantine one-upped the old imperial college tetrarchic system by naming not four, but five new emperors to share rule. These emperors included his three sons and two of their uncles. Perhaps the illness that took Constantine clouded his judgment. Perhaps he believed the strength of the family ties would be enough to avoid empire-wide conflict. His dream lasted for all of about five minutes. His three sons were not having it, and shortly after Constantine's death, their two uncles conveniently tripped and fell onto an innocent bystander's knife, about ten times each. The other branches of the Constantinian family tree were mysteriously pruned of male relatives. Only a few were left who were still children. These sorts of purges are rather common in antiquity. Since imperial titles were passed down through heredity, getting rid of one's family was a great way to get rid of potential rivals for the throne. Once the purge was done, Constantine's three sons met up to really divide the empire. Constantine II would rule the westernmost third, which included Gaul, Britain, and Spain. Constans would take Italy, North Africa, and a province called Illyrica that included modern-day Croatia and Slovenia and Constantius II would take everything to the east of that. If you are gritting your teeth and wondering just how long it is going to take for the brothers to start doing an internal civil war with each other, then let me congratulate you on your 2020 hindsight. The answer, by the way, is about three years. But it's an important three years of peace we have, and this division of the empire was very good news for one plucky, exiled young bishop. Athanasius. He had been hanging out across the empire, writing letters and trying to run Alexandria from afar. But Constantine never wavered with Athanasius like he had with Arius, and so his exile did not end until Constantine died. Athanasius was then allowed to return home with a letter of permission from Constantine II, in whose far western territory Athanasius had been living. But some people had a problem with this. First and foremost was Constantius II, who was the one actually in charge of Alexandria, and who did not appreciate his brother lobbing estranged problematic bishops back into his territory like some kind of stray Episcopal baseball from the neighbor's yard. Second were all the bishops who had so recently deposed Athanasius at the Council of Tyre, and they sent a strongly worded letter to all three emperors to the effect that Athanasius was bad news and should still be exiled. This letter accomplished absolutely nothing, as the three emperors had better things to do than answer strongly worded letters, but hey, at least they tried. During his time back in Alexandria, Athanasius began to enjoy support from a new group of players on the scene, the monks. You may remember those eccentric holy men and women from all the way back in episode 3. For the most part, they have so far been at the margins of our story, sitting around in the desert to pray, fast, and give cryptic yet insightful answers to pilgrims' questions. But now they began to visit Athanasius in Alexandria and give their support for him. And not just any monks, either. Anthony the Great usually credited as the founder of Egyptian monasticism, 
personally came to give Athanasius his blessing and public support. This is a big deal. Monks were revered for their holiness, a holiness that came not from any institutional blessing, but from the integrity of their lives and their character. To have them on Athanasius's side, theologically and politically, was a massive boon. Which means that the road to Nicaea is brought to you by monks. Is that fast-paced secular life getting you down? Do you want to spend all day at a slower pace, praying and maybe just braiding rope and stuff? Well then try the monastic life. A great way to leave all that ordinary, everyday stress behind. Enjoy all the finest amenities of the desert, like your own private cave. Lots of time for prayer. Only having to see other people, like a couple of times a week, maybe. Gaining great spiritual wisdom from your long hours of prayer. Getting a reputation for that spiritual wisdom and having to see lots of people who come to you for advice. Then getting such a reputation that you can help out your bishop friends when they are in trouble. Join the monks now for the low, low price of everything. No, like seriously, just like give up all your positions. Yes, forever. What, you mean things are bothering you? Well then why do you still have things? Monasticism. As close to heaven as you can get, because the only earthly thing left is your body. But all that massive monastic support was not enough to keep Athanasius in Alexandria forever. A year or so after that initial return, Constantius II decided that he had had enough, and ordered Athanasius right back into exile. We aren't quite sure why he had this change of heart. Constantius repeats the old charge that Athanasius was manipulating grain shipments. Perhaps he was genuinely convinced of this. Perhaps he disliked the ways that bishops from other parts of the empire were meddling in Alexandria's affairs. However, Constantius II also had theological skin in this game. He was personally sympathetic to the beliefs of Arius and the Eusebii, and he may have wanted to tip the scales in their favor. And the Eusebii and friends had recently become all the more powerful. For Eusebius of Nicomedia was no longer of Nicomedia. He had just taken up the much more powerful position as Bishop of Constantinople. Now reigning from the imperial capital, Eusebius of Constantinople would use his power to push out bishops whom he saw as threats to the true doctrine of God, starting with Athanasius. He called a council in Antioch that declared Athanasius deposed from Alexandria and named a different, more malleable candidate, a guy named George of Cappadocia, to that office. And so it was that in Easter of 339, a group of armed soldiers arrived in Alexandria to kick Athanasius out by force. He briefly took refuge in a nearby church, performed a few final baptisms of his followers, and then fled by boat to the city of Rome under the friendlier reign of Constans. The use of force against Athanasius did not go unnoticed, and riots broke out across the city. So severe was the disorder that two large churches were set on fire, and several people died. Then George showed up, immediately started demanding that everybody treat him like the bishop, because he totally was the bishop now, you guys, so you need to get on board. 
which is exactly the kind of sensitive, conciliatory attitude that you want when people are rioting. And Athanasius was not the only bishop stuck on this exilic merry-go-round. Paul of Constantinople, you may remember him, he was the guy who barricaded himself in his room so he didn't have to readmit Arius to the church, well, he also got exiled back in 336. We don't have as much information on Paul as we do on Athanasius. We don't even know what the charges were that he was exiled for. But he wouldn't have long to wait, as he too was allowed to return when Constantine died the next year. But then one of his priests accused him again of some crime, we still aren't sure what, and Constantius had him exiled in 338. It's possible that Eusebius of Nicomedia engineered the charge, as he would become Bishop of Constantinople in Paul's absence. But then Eusebius died three years later, and the seat was open again for the third time in five years. At this point, Constans wrote a letter to Constantius II telling him that Paul, along with Athanasius, were with him in Rome, and he is assured they are both totally cool, their enemies were just making all that stuff up, and Constantius really needed to let them back in. And if he wouldn't, Constans would make sure to get them back to their sees, with his brother's help, or without it. Athanasius this not being his first time at the exilic game, wisely decided to stay in Rome a bit longer to see what Constantius would make of this threat. Paul, on the other hand, decided that it was time to waltz back into Constantinople letter in hand. Surely Constantius would see the light when his old buddy, his brother, his old pal Constans was writing so personally, right? Constantius was considerably less taken with this letter than Paul had hoped, and he sent military officials to kick Paul out of the city. This began the worst series of riots Constantinople had yet seen. Things got so out of hand that the rioters killed the commander who had been sent to kick Paul out, tied his body to a horse, and dragged it through the streets. Constantius was really not amused now. He personally returned to his capital city, crushed the rioters, and exiled Paul again. Now, mind you, there is no evidence that Paul was leading the rioters, but Constantius decided this guy was too much trouble and banished him all the way to Mesopotamia. All of which raises a question that people have been asking for centuries. What is it about religion that sparks such violence. It is, after all, deeply and painfully ironic that a religion dedicated to the Prince of Peace should spend so much time fighting over who gets to be bishop of what city. And it's not just a Christian thing. In general, the religions of the world preach peace, love, and tolerance. So why do they end up causing so much bloodshed? That is, of course, a bigger question than we can answer on this podcast. But there are some lessons we can learn that may make it a little less mysterious. The first is just that groups function differently than individuals. I once knew a sociologist who put it like this. Go out and do a psychological profile on 10,000 people, any 10,000 people you like, you will probably find that not many of them would flip over a car when they're angry, 
or throw a Molotov cocktail through a storefront, or get into bloody conflicts. But take those same 10,000 people, put them in a soccer stadium where the rival team wins a close match, and all those things happen, and happen pretty regularly. Crowds have a greater capacity for violence than individuals, and in the hypersocial ancient world, every city was full of crowds. The second lesson we should learn is that this also has to do with the messy entanglement of religion and politics that has been going on since Constantine. Bishops are not just spiritual figures. They are political actors. Often, they're the ones charged with distributing imperial favors to the local populace. When people come to rely on their bishop for material sustenance, for the food they need to feed their families, well, they naturally become quite angry when they feel a bishop they like is being forced out. What's more, both Athanasius and Paul were removed by imperial force, and so the crowd quite naturally felt as though they were merely responding to an unjust use of violence by the state. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that riots are the language of the unheard, and I suspect the crowds felt pretty unheard at this point. Both of these lessons, I think, make the issues at stake more understandable. But there's a third thing to keep in mind, and it may be less obvious, but it is that people just really believed this stuff. Nowadays, you'll often find that historians really like to explain everything in terms of material and economic conditions. World history is often thought to turn entirely on the basis of dynamics between rich and poor, the political machinations of rulers, and technological change. Now, of course, all of those are true. They're legitimate factors. But sometimes, especially in the disaffected West, we miss the fact that lots of ordinary people genuinely cared what doctrines their churches were teaching. The Reformation wouldn't have happened if they didn't. The English Civil War wouldn't have happened if Puritans hadn't desired greater reforms in the Church of England. And there was a reason Arius spent his time on the docks of Alexandria, teaching ordinary ship workers his heretical sea shanties. Theology was not, is not, just a matter for intellectuals and bishops. So it is today. You will, for example, find many parents who are quite happy for their child to marry a Lutheran or a Presbyterian, but God help them if they fall in love with a Catholic. People care about religion. And so when things happen they don't like, they get angry. And when they get angry, the dynamics of a crowd mentality can easily take over. Of course, violence in the name of religion is wrong. Period. End of story but it is also natural. Those of us who live in secular democracies often have this idea that there is something unnatural about religious zeal, that if you care too much about God, or are too insistent that your religious views should dictate public policy, that you have been brainwashed somehow. This idea makes it very hard to understand the majority of people, both ancient and modern, because guess what, friends? Most people think exactly that. The dream of most modern secular democracies was that if we could just keep governments religiously neutral, then everybody could go on disagreeing with each other in private while still keeping public peace and unity. 
we could have tranquility without agreeing on the truth. But the historical record suggests that this dream may be a fiction. I cannot help but think of the violent mob that attacked the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021. No doubt the anger of the crowd lowered many protesters' inhibitions to violence. No doubt the cynicism of many politicians had brought us to that day. And yet it is also true that most of the rioters, the insurrectionists, were there because they genuinely believed the baseless claim, now well-refuted in legal cases, that the United States presidential election had been stolen. Because they believed that, they were doing what they thought was right. They believed they had to stop an illegal transfer of power. Now, of course, politics and religion are not the same thing. But my point is simply this. We cannot make an end run around questions of truth. People will act on their beliefs. And when they think the truth is in danger and force is the only way to protect it, they will often act violently. This is true in religion. It is also true in politics, in racial affairs, in economics, and everywhere else. Violence is wrong. It must be condemned and opposed. But we cannot eradicate it with vain hopes that everybody can just bracket their differences and get along. History has shown us the majority of people are not willing to do that. Well, so much for poor Paul and his doomed bishopric in Constantinople. We are going to leave him in his exile for now. He will return one more time to Constantinople to claim his seat, and it will go about as well as it has gone every other time. He will be exiled for the fourth and final time, and the priest who initially accused him of crimes will be made bishop in his stead. <sighs> Tragic. But we aren't getting into that right now because, well, Paul's not actually that important to the rest of the story. Sorry, Paul. So let's pick back up with Athanasius, who has wisely decided to stay in Rome and wait to see whether the winds will change in his favor. In the meantime, two important things will happen. First, he will write his famous orations against the Arians that we have already examined. Second, he will begin a friendship with none other than Marcellus of Ancyra. Yes, that's right. The awkward, unpopular, modalist-sounding Marcellus was also in exile in Rome, where he had been since he got kicked out of his see by the Eusebii right after the Council of Nicaea. Expatriates apparently have to stick together, and so Athanasius and Marcellus became quite close. Athanasius found in Marcellus a natural theological ally. Even if he didn't share Marcellus's odd psychology, Marcellus was definitely on board with Nicaea and its homoousius language, and we know that several of the arguments Athanasius made in the orations appear to have come directly from Marcellus. Marcellus found in Athanasius someone who was, well, willing to put up with his weird theologizing, which after many years of being the theological black sheep in the church was about all he could hope for. And so they became quite close. One imagines them hitting up the Roman bars on a Friday night and looking at each other several pints in, shaking their heads ruefully and saying, The Arians, man, we've got to do something about these Arians. But they did not succeed in convincing Constantius of their cause just yet. 
In fact, it may not have been very politically savvy for Athanasius to associate with Marcellus, who was still radioactive. But they did succeed in making another important ally, Julius, the new bishop of Rome. You may remember that the previous bishop of Rome was very sick at the Council of Nicaea and couldn't attend, so he sent a few priests to act as delegates instead. Well, that bishop stayed sick and died and was replaced by Julius, who was considerably healthier and ready to weigh in on all this Christological controversy going on in the empire. And weigh in he did. Julius called a local council of bishops in Rome in 341. They investigated Athanasius and Marcellus and pronounced them both perfectly orthodox. Then, Julius wrote a letter to the Eusebii and their friends summarizing their decision while outlining a number of reasons the party of Eusebius, as he called them, to use very technical theological language, sucked. Here are all the reasons why Julius thought the Eusebians sucked. First, they had received Arians into their communion and mistreated poor Athanasius and Marcellus. Note that Julian has begun to use that label of Arian that Athanasius has popularized. In so doing, the Eusebii had effectively ignored the Council of Nicaea, which is of course very, very bad. Second, the Eusebians had improperly moved bishops from one see to another, which Nicaea had forbidden. This is an obvious attack on Eusebius of Constantinople, who had moved from Nicomedia to a bigger, shinier sea when he got the opportunity, and, of course, at the expense of poor Paul. It also conveniently attacked a man who had died several years prior to the letter and was thus very unlikely to defend himself. Third, the Eusebians had meddled with Alexandria in all sorts of ways. They had observed no traditional rules when they forced George into the bishopric, and the commissions that had investigated Marcellus and Athanasius were total bunk. Fourth, and most importantly, Julius made a novel claim, that when judging bishops of important jurisdictions that were founded by the apostles, you know, places like Alexandria, the person who should have the final say is the Bishop of Rome. This would have come as a surprise to the letter's recipients for any number of reasons. First and foremost, literally no one, no one at all, had asked the Bishop of Rome's opinion about who got to be a bishop for at least a hundred years. Second, Nicaea had made it perfectly clear that ancient sees like Alexandria had the same authority as Rome, not that they were subordinate to Rome for picking or evaluating their bishops. So, as you might imagine, everybody in the East was uh, less than thrilled to receive this letter. The Eastern bishops were less than thrilled to be told that the Bishop of Rome, who hadn't even been at Nicaea, was now telling him that he was their boss. They were really tired of being called heretics, and they really didn't like Athanasius and Marcellus. So, by extension, they didn't like anyone who was friends with them. Constantius was also less than thrilled to receive this letter for reasons that had more to do with imperial politics. For some of you alert listeners will have noted that the Council of Rome went down in 341, which is four years after the division of the empire that I said would last three years. And indeed, the boundary lines of the empire are shifting, and not in Constantius's favor. What happened was this. 
Around 340, Constantine II decided he was tired of only having a third of the empire to rule. As the oldest surviving and least creatively named son of Constantine, he thought he deserved a bigger share of the empire to rule. And after all, he could just run his dad's old playbook, right? He had the same territories his father had started out with, Britain and Gaul, with Spain as a nice bonus. So one fine day, he stood in front of his mirror saying, uh, we, we can do it, self. We're going to conquer the whole Roman Empire just like Dad did. We're going to rule everything, and it's going to be so awesome. He would not, and he did not. Shortly after making war against his brother Constans, Constantine II suffered a humiliating military defeat and was killed. Constans took over running his old brother's third of the empire, making him the more powerful of the two remaining brothers. Constantius did not love that his brother suddenly had twice the territory that he did, and he really did not love that the Bishop of Rome, his brother's capital, was suddenly trying to boss all the bishops in his territory around. This will be a recurring theme with Constantius. He tends to get really irritated when he thinks that bishops are overstepping their bounds and meddling in the affairs of others. So Constantius and most of the bishops in the Eastern Empire read this letter and started fuming. And like most people do when they are fuming and have received a letter of reasons why they suck, they really, really wanted to write back to Julius and tell him that no, he was actually the one who sucked an opportunity would soon present itself to do just that. For it just so happened that later in 341, there was a dedication ceremony for a big new church in Antioch. Bishops from all over the eastern third of the empire were present, as was Constantius himself. So they decided to have a council right then and there and settle this whole uppity supremacy of Rome matter once and for all. They did not realize what they had done. For, in fact, the Council of 341 would produce one of the most perilous and difficult periods in the entire controversy. For, for me, that is. I mean, I mean, the bishops were fine. They just got really mad at each other a bunch. But for plucky church history podcasters, the Council of 341 began the perilous era of too many creeds in which bishops kept meeting, often at the same place, to keep making up more and more creeds for us to hold in our minds, to keep repeating the same theological lines in the sand that have been set up for generations. It's a very difficult time period to narrate, and yet the only way out is through. So, dear listener, it is with some trepidation that I invite you to join me next time for the era of too many creeds, the quicksand-filled pit that lies between us and the rest of the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.